Good morning, Central Illinois. This is another edition of The Car Guy on PeoriaLife.com. My name is Greg McCoy, and I'm here with Brett Beachler. How are you doing, Brett? Good morning, Greg. I'm doing fantastic. Great. It's a beautiful day out there. It might rain a little bit, but possibly not too bad of a deal. Uh, well, last week we talked about some basic items of taking care of your car. And we wanted to continue that this this week, and we just started uh, talking about the electrical system last week. And I thought it might be a good idea to start this week with just a review of what the electrical system in your car does, what's the relationship between spark plugs, alternator, battery, all that kind of stuff, because sure. I, I don't think a lot of people understand that. Sure. No. Um, it's, it's not complex, but if you're not aware of it, it may seem a little bit more complex. So the battery is the main source of power that actually starts the vehicle okay you get a discharge battery um, your car's not going to go anywhere without what they call a jump start okay the alternator is basically like the heart of the electrical system the alternator supplies the electric to your radio your blower system your climate system uh, all the headlights the taillights uh, even the ignition that goes into the sparks that fire the cylinders the, the fuel inside the cylinders so the alternator goes, you're, you're dead in the water. There's no moving. Um, there's no patching. You know, we have had situations where people can actually replace batteries to supply, temporarily supply electrical to the, to the car, but the batteries discharge really, really quickly. Um, How quickly would a full battery discharge with no alternator? Uh, that really depends upon the electronics of the vehicle and how much amperage everything combined uh, together draws typically 30 minutes to an hour. Um, It'd go that long. It, it would go that long. I always advise people that if, if the battery light does illuminate, the wise thing to do is to shut everything down as much as you can. The radio, the blower system, turn it to the off position. Uh, obviously, you're going to need electricity to run all the, the sparks inside the engine. Um, but at that, at that moment, you're going to make that battery last longer so you can get somewhere without having to be towed. So... So to start the engine, the electricity or the spark for the, the spark plugs comes from the battery. Correct. But once you get going. Once you get going, the alternator takes over. So the alternator really is just like a generator. It is. Much like a generator. Generating electricity. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Um, but once, once started, it takes a tremendous amount of voltage, by the way, to start a car. We hear this all the time where people go, hey, I want to go start my car. And my lights light up, my radio turns on, but my car won't start. It uh, takes very, very little amperage to run those devices in the car, but it takes a huge amount of amperage uh, to start a car. There's a, lots of lots of power that needs to turn that engine over. So um, that's where having a strong battery is rather helpful when starting a vehicle. And they calibrate that in cool cranking amps, is that right? That is correct. Don't get too technical on me because <laughs> I can't elaborate too much on that. I just know uh, cold cranking amps, every car has got a uh, specified amount that they need. Um, and uh, batteries come with that cold cranking amperage uh, rating on the battery, and you sell it according to the what the needs of the car are. So an alternator is basically a generator. It is. Why do they call it an alternator? I don't know. That's a fantastic question. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, you know, it, it's a good question. I don't have the scientific answer to that. Hmm. Okay. So. Well, <laughs> well uh, next question. Uh, speaking of the alternator, we talked, last week about the fan the cooling fan for the engine for the radiator used mm -hmm. to be run on a belt correct but now it's electrical it is electrical but the alternator still runs on a belt right yes it does okay uh the alternator needs that power from the engine 
constantly at all times to do to, to run the alternator and the voltage that comes from the alternator. So there are still a few items that are run on belt. One of the items they're trying to do away with is the power steering system has always been run on a belt. There are now electric power steerings on vehicles. So you don't you don't have that belt necessary. So essentially what that does is we're all pushing for what they call cafe standards and increasing the miles per gallon on cars. That allows the car to better its miles per gallon when you have a system that runs off the electrical. Okay. So you have one less pulley draining any horsepower from that engine. Thus, thus requiring the engine to have less horsepower to move that car forward. So there, there, there goes your increased gas mileage. But more electrical need, right? So yeah, True. does the alternator have to get bigger? Uh, slightly. You get you need more amperage, but the other drawback is um, the power steering system when it fails is typically more expensive. Um, so it's not a bad thing. Uh, I think overall there's a little bit of savings for the end user, the consumer, the one paying the bill. Um, but that's what we demand. Our government's pushing for it, and CAFE standards is what it's all about. And it affects many more components in the car on that. So so with respect to these things then, there are a couple gauges and lights that you need to watch with, with respect to the battery, with respect to the alternator mm-hmm. and so forth. So could you talk about those for a couple minutes? So the important gauges, uh, one of the most important one is fuel gauge. Um, you want to make sure that's, you know, a quarter tank or above. Um, we've talked about before the, the benefits of having fuel inside your tank to keep that fuel pump running cool. Um, the folks that run their their fuel constantly below a quarter tank and into the eighth tank all of the time are going to have a high pr- higher probability of um, a failed fuel pump, which is typically five to eight hundred dollars. So I always I always encourage people to keep more than a quarter tank of fuel in their car. Uh, the other the other gauge you're really looking at is um, well, there's a check engine light. We discussed that last week. Uh, that monitors all the emissions and the fuel systems on the car. There's many many components that are tied into that check engine light. Um, the oil light, very important. If that oil light illuminates, uh, check your oil immediately. Um, we've, like I said before many times, and I want to reiterate this, we've had thousands of dollars of engines replaced because people did not pay attention to their oil light or their oil level. So very critical. Most people don't do that anymore. We're actually required by our owner's manual to check our oil level every time we get fuel. How many hoods do we see up at our gas pumps throughout the day? Very, very few. Probably less than 2% of vehicles have their hoods up and people are checking Maybe you should put a warning sign up at the fuel pump there. I I think we have an over um, inundation of signs on our fuel pump that people don't read anyway. So I don't know if one more sign might correct that or not. I think it's more of a personal interaction trying to encourage people to check fluid levels. So, so what about the alternator though? You're going down the road mm-hmm. and the alternator fails for some reason. Mm-hmm. Is there a light that comes on and tells you that? Yes. The light would be called the battery light. You'll see what looks like a battery on your, on your dashboard. Don't ask me why they have a battery light on the dashboard that tells you if an alternator fails. Um, but nine times out of 10 or more, if, if your battery light comes on, it's an alternator that's failing. Um, you do need testing equipment to verify, um, but um, nine times out of 10 or more, it, you have an alternator that's at the end of its life and needs to be replaced. So what's the difference between that and a battery gauge? A battery gauge simply, well, the battery gauge actually is tied into the alternator voltage once the car starts. 
okay and it's off of battery power and onto the the alternator power so the battery gauge if you've got a little needle there measuring that is actually measuring the amperage of the alternator um, which is typically between 13.8 and 14.3 which is ideal um, so again a little bit of confusing situation but it, it is actually monitoring the alternator 99% of the time mm. so okay interesting little tidbit yeah Okay, so we, a few minutes ago you mentioned about monitoring your oil level. What are, what are some of the other fluid levels that a person should be looking at on a regular basis? Transmission fluid. One of them is pretty important. The interesting aspect of transmission fluid, and most of the guys in this room know this, but transmission fluid you actually inspect while the engine is running and at temperature. Um, there's some science behind that, but that's when you check transmission fluid. Now, there are cars out there, and I've seen people get into interesting situations where they are unable to locate their transmission dipstick. They'll sit there for 5, 10, 15 minutes attempting to find the transmission dipstick. Well, there are quite a few cars out there that have what they call sealed transmissions. So there's no dipstick. So the theory behind it is if a transmission starts losing fluid, you will see it. There's no need to have a dipstick, um, which is an additional cost on a vehicle when doing the production on the production line. There's no reason to have a dipstick on the transmission. So um, the theory is, is definitely there. It's, it's legitimate theory. Um, so, but most cars anymore still have transmission dipsticks. The nice thing about having transmission dipstick on many Asian cars, the time to change the fluid is on inspect only. So when it turns from a bright red color to a dullish brown color, that's the time to change your transmission fluid. So uh, without a dipstick, you wouldn't know that, but typically the cars without a dipstick have a mileage interval as to when to change the transmission fluid. Now, you said on oil, people should be che checking the oil when, every time they fill up their, their car. That's what the owner's manual says, yes. <clears throat> now, what about the transmission fluid? How often should a person be checking that? Uh, not nearly as often. I mean, if you're under the hood, you might as well. It takes an extra 30 seconds to do it. The only difference is check the oil with the engine off, transmission fluid's you check that inspect it with the engine operating at and at temperature, not just start it up in the morning, then it's cold and transmission hasn't been operating yet. Um, it needs to be at temperature and, and have been operating to check transmission fluid. So typically people pulling into a gas pump are at temperature and that's the time to do it. So, um, but not nearly as important as the oil. I wish there was some way to take an online survey as to how many people know where their transmission dipstick is. <laughs> I would say probably most don't, and that's not a bad thing. It's just something that most people typically don't inspect. Mm -hmm. So, But it's good to know. It is good to know. What about power steering? Power steering fluid. So as I said before, uh, there are some vehicles that are equipped now with electric power steering. Of course, they don't have fluid to check. Uh, but most cars still have a power steering, what they call reservoir. And there's actually a dipstick on the bottom of the cap that allows you to check the power steering fluid and tell when it's, and actually has a hot and a cold area. So you can, you can measure it either way. You can measure it in the morning when you get inside the car and it'll tell you if it's, if it's full at the cold line, then you're, you're completely fine. So the, the catch is if you run out of power steering fluid, then you've got a leak somewhere going on. Um, it's not like the oil. If you run out of oil, you either have a leak or, and, or you have an engine that burns oil and uses oil that you're not going to see on the ground. Power steering, the only way you lose power steering is through uh, leaks, and that's it. So if you have power steering that you're checking the fluid level on it and there's none on the little dipstick inside the reservoir, 
Then you have a leak somewhere either in the rack system, which is called a power steering rack and pinion assembly in the pump system, or in one of the higher, higher low pressure lines that feed into the pump and into the rack. So um, not, not as typical, not as often do we see power steering leaks anymore. Cars are just made better. I, I keep saying that. I've said that on many, many shows. I know a lot of people get into the older cars and they love the nostalgia, but those, those older cars were maintenance hogs. Um, there's a lot of maintenance that went into those cars, you know, back then changing plugs every 10,000 miles. Now you're changing them every hundred thousand miles. I'll, I'll take today's car over the, over the past any day. So how often do you change power steering fluid and brake fluid and that kind of thing? Interesting question because our industry uh, by and far encourages the changing of fluids on vehicles. And I've had many debates, discussions with other shop owners, not only from here, but from around the country that completely put their stock in trade and changing fluids on cars. So I go back, we, our philosophy at Beachler's is we go back to the, the owner's manual. What does the owner's manual state to do? Most vehicles, most domestic vehicles do not require power steering fluid exchanges, nor do they require brake fluid exchanges. Ever. 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 Um, the, the purpose behind that is if the, too much, for example, the power steering system, or I'm sorry, the brake system, if too much water content gets into the brake system, then yes, you need to flush it. But in theory, there's no reason for water to get into the brake fluid system unless somebody's taking the cap off, leaving the cap off. The fluid attracts, you know, moisture content from the air and moisture gets in the system. But most people don't take their brake fluid caps off and leave them off. Most people don't check their brake fluid to begin with, and I'm not picking on people by any means, but it's not a necessary um, necessary strategy on most vehicles to change either one of those fluids. Now, you get into vehicles like Subarus, both or both Subarus require both brake fluid exchanges and power steering fluid ex- exchanges. The reason behind that, I believe, in my anecdotal opinion, is those cars generally see more off-road activity and things of that nature. Um, you do see some Asian cars like Hondas that require brake fluid exchanges, but most Asian vehicles do not require power steering flushes. And the reason I tell people that is we get it almost on a daily basis. People come in our door and they say, hey, this other place recommended I do these items on my car. And we go through the list and we compare them to our list and we say, hey, here's what your owner's manual is saying to do. Compare it to what you're being told to do. And do what you feel is right, but this is what the engineer of the car put together on your car so you could keep it 250,000 miles or more while reducing your operating expenses. Um, in the end, I call them wallet flushes. I wrote a book and part of my chapters on wallet flushes, what we do in the industry. And the purpose of this is to educate people as to what to do, what not to do on their vehicles so they can make informed decisions. Mm-hmm. So, Well, another fluid that we haven't talked about is coolant, antifreeze. Yes. So coolant, the purpose behind coolant inside of an engine, a radiator, and a heater core is it has an anti-corrosion um, chemical inside of it. And its job is to keep it from corroding within that metallic system of the vehicle. And over time and or mileage, that anti-corrosion uh, chemical inside breaks down. Okay, So generally, most cars require 100 to 150,000 mile fluid changes, or they're based on time. Most of them are five to eight years that we're seeing in vehicles. So the point behind it is, if they tell you to change it and you want to prolong the life of 
components such as radiators and heater cores, which we love replacing radiators and heater cores when people neglect their systems because typically radiators are five to six hundred dollars, heater cores are six, seven, eight hundred dollars, um, generally because systems are neglected. And then you flip it back to the maintenance aspect of it, and the coolant flush is $139. So versus those other two replacements, it's, you know, dimes on the dollar. Um, I always encourage folks just to follow their owner's manual again on coolant. Now, there are a few models of vehicles out there that do not require coolant flushes. They've engineered it in such a way that those vehicles don't require it. I think Volkswagen has a few models that do not require coolant flushes on their cars. But most vehicles, if you, if you were to review your owner's manual, require you to change coolant in the car. So, and you want to keep a good mix in there. Um, generally, it's 50-50. Believe it or not, you have better temperature protection with 50% water and 50% antifreeze than you would have it with pure antifreeze. Hmm. I, I'm not a chemist. I don't understand it. I've, I've read that, this information, in fact. and That's not intuitive. But. No, it's not intuitive. Um, it's hard. It's a hard one to swallow, but there's some chemical issues, that, or not issues, but chemical aspects that go on, and, and uh, you're definitely better off with a 50-50 mix. Hmm. So, so if a person monitored their own coolant and noticed it was a little low, should they just add some antifreeze or do, should they add that mix 50-50? Uh, they should add the mix, yes. Um, you're okay if you add the antifreeze, and you're actually okay if you add just water, but the problem with adding just water, if you're in a, in a predicament, is you're going to have to get it flushed out because it's going to affect the temperature protection of that antifreeze. So most antifreeze temperature protections are between 35 to 45 below. That means... If the temperature got down to 35 below zero, which it hardly ever does, if it does in Peoria, Illinois, if it gets down to 35 below and your temperature protection is at 25 below, the chances of your engine block cracking because that fluid is going to freeze inside of the engine increases. So that's the whole point of having temperature protection under coolant. So the people that come in and they have temperature protection of 10 degrees, 15 degrees above zero, we immediately put the red flags up and say, you got to get that out of there. They're in trouble. They're in trouble. Hmm. Now I'm assuming I probably shouldn't assume, you know what they say about assuming, but I'm thinking that when somebody brings in their car for service at your facility, as well as many other good facilities, all these things get checked, right? Mm -hmm. Any, any good shop has, uh, an antifreeze tester. Um, they have a good inspection sheet that their, their technician is to go around and, and specifically check these items. I know we have an electronic inspection sheet that we can go back on history and go back three years and say, hey, where was the antifreeze back, you know, in 2013? Um, that's the really nice thing about computers. I don't know. I know a lot of people buck them, but they're really, really nice for record keeping. So any good shop has a document uh, documentation system, whether it's paper or computer, that they can their guy can go through uh, – methodically every time and check all the fluid levels, all the tire pressures before and after all the lights, um, all the peripheral items on the vehicle so they can give the customer a good report on the vehicle, um, fluid levels, especially, but, you know, I, I see in our industry a lot where they have these fluid level, um, not fluid level, but fluid, um, testing where they show the customer the color of the fluid I don't know if you've ever run into this at other other shops, but they'll have a side-by-side -side comparison of what coolant and transmission fluid should look like and what yours looks like. Kind of buyer beware on those items because here's what happens, okay? Transmission fluid. Transmission fluid. Um, you know, you might have a car, a lot of domestic cars 
say, 100,000 miles on transmission fluid. So at 60,000 miles, your guy will come up and say, hey, here's what the brand new transmission fluid should look like. Here's what yours looks like. You really got to be careful out there because you'll get sold a transmission flush at 60,000 miles. If your owner's manual says to do it at 100,000 miles, do it at 100,000 miles. We see it with coolant. We see it with power steering fluid. We see it with brake fluid. You know, just all of these items, be aware of what your owner's manual states to do, and it will help your wallet tremendously in the long run. And it doesn't have any effect on your vehicle long-term if you're, obviously it's it's not not beneficial if you tra- you flush your transmission fluid at 60 and it requires it at 100, but you take a $179 transmission flush and do it at 60 and then again at 120 and then again at 180, you're spending money you don't need to spend. So cars are expensive enough. You don't need to add extra expense on these items. But you're supporting the economy. Yeah, you're supporting the economy. But the bottom line is if people are, were keenly aware of what their owner's manual said, there would be a lot of refuting that went on in these other shops that are looking for avenues of, of revenue um, on vehicles. So. That's why I say being the cheapest in town is not the best and ideal thing. Being the most expensive in town is not the best or ideal thing. When you're getting someone that gives you the straight shot, and there are a lot of shops out there that do this, they give you the straight and narrow in terms of what the car needs, what it doesn't need. You know, watch out for wallet flushes. That's our that's our big mantra is just be careful of wallet flushes. Be care- careful of the nitrogen in tires and the power steering flushes on domestic cars and the brake fluid flushes on domestic cars and the fuel injection cleaning on domestic cars. You know, the only real benefit of fuel injection cleaning, I just mentioned that, is these gas direct injecting injections where they're actually injecting directly into the cylinders. And it's a new technology. It's going to come even more. Basically, they put the fuel pump at at the top of the engine as opposed to the tank. So, um, but fuel injection cleaning by and far, you don't need to do that. Save your $99 or $149 that places are charging you and it's just not necessary. So, I'm kind of dovetailing off a little bit, but I just, I always reinforce that with our education that we do. So mm-hmm. that's good. That's good. Well, let's move on from liquids and talk about some other general things about, um, cars, fuel, you know, mm-hmm. you pull up to a gas station and if you've got a gasoline powered car, there's usually three grades, mm-hmm. small, low, high, and medium. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have the impression that the higher is better. It's more expensive. So we all typically buy the low, but is there a reason to buy the high or the mid, and, no. and if not, why do they offer it? <laughs> no. Well, we, as everybody knows, we sell fuel. Um, most vehicles do not require the higher octane fuel, period. You are not going to get, get better gas mileage by putting a nine, 93 octane in your tank. Really? That will, give you, will not give you better mileage? No, it will not. That what, is, is a, what does it do? Um, it allows for better performance, um, especially in cars that require, for example, Corvettes. You, they want you to put the 93 octane in there to, for peak performance um, because of the, the timing issues of the engine, and, and they just run better on the higher octane fuel. But for the most part, vehicles do not need higher octane fuel. And I know that sounds contradictory in terms of what we sell, but it's, it's absolutely not necessary. So sorry to burst anybody's bubble. but <laughs> Well, that's a high octane. What about the middle? Does anybody buy the middle octane? Uh, you know, not knowing complete numbers in terms of what we sell and people do buy it, but it's, again, it's not necessary, not necessary. And I could, I, we got a whole segment we could do on ethanol, but we'll not, we'll not dive into that this uh, morning. Ethanol, yeah. 
So for the most part, most people do not need to put the mid, mid or the upper grade fuel in their cars. So okay. save your money. All right. Now, with respect to diesel cars, typically there's only one um, one grade available, although mm-hmm. it changes winter to summer, right? Mm-hmm. They change the blend somehow. That's correct. And a lot of times, I used to have a diesel, uh, mm-hmm. uh, TDI, a Volkswagen, and it's, sometimes I'd pull up to a station and there would be the diesel and it'd have a bigger nozzle mm-hmm. that I couldn't use. Is mm-hmm. that for trucks or what, what was the deal on that? Uh, that is for trucks, yes. And don't make the mistake where I've had a few customers that we didn't necessarily want to do the service on them because we felt bad for them, but they would actually try to put diesel fuel inside their gasoline tank. That's that's not not a good situation. Dropping fuel tanks and and uh, dropping fuel tanks and and away you go. It's a, it's a costly mistake, especially if you get the diesel fuel up inside your fuel injectors. Not a good thing. So if your nozzle doesn't fit inside the tank, don't put the fuel in there. That's a good thing. That's your 101 fuel tip for the day. And that goes both ways. You should put gas in a diesel and you should yes. put diesel in a gas, right? Very good. Very good, yes. Yeah, the nozzle on the gasoline, to, to elaborate on this, the nozzle on the gasoline, um, it, it, the the diameter of it's smaller than the than the, the diesel nozzle. So just so everybody knows that. I guess there's a lot of things you shouldn't put in the fuel tank. You remember when we were growing up, it seemed to be a prank, fairly popular prank to put sugar in somebody's gas tank? Mm-hmm. You don't see that too much what anymore. What's behind that anyway? <laughs> just, just I don't know, mischievous kids mm. out looking to do something. But doing that, just like you does that have the same effect? You got to tear the engine apart. Oh yeah, yeah. You got to. You don't have to tear the engine apart. You got to take the fuel tank out and flush it, and you have to get the sugar out and change fuel filters, and so it doesn't necessarily make it up into the injectors like uh, diesel fuel does. But yeah, it's not a good thing. Not a very sweet deal. No. <laughs> no pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> Okay, a couple other things that uh, might be interesting to mention here in terms of generally taking care of your car. What about spare tires? Uh, first of all, is it possible to get a real spare tire anymore in a car, or are they all these donuts? Few, few and far between. Many of them are compact spares is what they call them, the donuts, um, also known as. Um, it, we're, bottom line is we want more space in cars, and we want better fuel economy. And these are one of the byproducts of it is you get small, tiny tires. Um, they still function. They're good up to 500 miles. Uh, one of the key aspects of them, though, is you got to check the inflation pressure every so often uh, because they do lose air sitting in the trunk, believe it or not. Lots of spares that we in- inspect, and they're flat. Um, you know, it's not a good thing when you're changing a spare alongside the road. Oops. <laughs> Oops. It's, it's, you're exactly right. At that point, you call a tow truck? Yeah, that's exactly right. There's no way around it. You call a tow truck. So, Do you have any thoughts about the safety involved in changing a spare tire on a big highway. Absolutely. Especially if it happens to be on the driver's side, which is towards the highway. Mm-hmm. So when I've had this happen to a family member, they pull off all the way to the right side as far as they can go and will actually angle the car. Um, you know, if you're headed in a north, northern direction, we'll angle the car. The right side of the car gets angled to the off the highway. And then the other one is I got a spotter back there when I'm changing the spare. Um, I just don't trust people, especially with text message. And I, I heard Greg Batten this morning on the, on the radio, and he was talking about walking from our business yesterday home two miles. And he said almost every car he went by, somebody had a cell phone in their hand, whether it's driving or texting or whatever the case may be. I just I don't trust people when it comes to that. I know it's anti-human, but I just don't <laughs> trust people when it comes to driving vehicles. Isn't that illegal? Yeah, it actually is illegal. 
you know, beyond the legal thing, it's just unsafe. You know, I ride road bikes um, in my in my spare time, and I don't get concerned over drunk drivers anymore. I get concerned over teenagers driving their cars and distracted driving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly right. So anyway, back to the change in the spare tire, just spotter and put it in a position that keeps you safe just in case somebody veers off the side of the road. What about knowing where your spare tire is? That is always a good thing. <laughs> and knowing um, where your jack is? Yeah, we uh, we we see this often where people don't know where their spare tire is, especially on minivans. A lot of minivans will put them under the middle part of the belly of the vehicle. Um, and you'll, we'll see a lot of people that don't understand where they're put and how to get them down. So it's a good practice. I've seen a lot of parents that run through practice with their kids. It's a good practice to go through it in your driveway just so you have a, a some kind of understanding of what you need to do and where the where the where the tire's at. Okay. Have you done that with your daughter? I shouldn't ask that, but um, she's thirteen <laughs> and it'll be so it's on it's the horizon here pretty soon. <laughs> but I, I shouldn't think... I shouldn't say this. She knows how to drive pretty well. Yeah, I think it is a good idea. But that that whole idea of safety in terms of changing a spare tire, I think is pretty pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean it wouldn't it wouldn't take much to get brushed. I mean, when you look at the amount of space there is mm-hmm. on the side of the highway, it's uh, pretty yep. scary. Sometimes. And it happens just like that too. Yep. Okay. Well, I think we've reached the end of our episode today. So thanks everybody for joining us on this edition of the car guy with Brett Beachler from Beachler's vehicle care and repair. Again, this is Greg McCoy on the car guy on PeoriaLife.com. We'll see you again next week. PeoriaLife.com.